Hello, and welcome to the Maximu Theater and Performance Podcast. Here's the second part of our big group chat about 2019. We talk about FOMO, hot people, our favorite moments of the decade, and more. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back. These are the fun questions. These are the kind of newer, sassier opinion questions. It's me. I'm Liz. I'm back. Hi, it's Nicole. Jose. It's Jack. (laughs) The Penny Maria. Orrin Squire. I'm Ben. I'm David. (laughs) I'm Patty. All right. So this is, of course, the biggest question that we're just going to kick right off with. Uh, What to you was the most impactful theater moment of the decade? Looking back, the success of Sleep No More, which sort of burst open uh, the whole concept of immersive theater as something that could be commercial and marketable to the mainstream. And I think we've uh, seen as a consequence a lot more immersive theater, both good and bad, both commercial and experimental than we would have seen otherwise had that show not bust through the way it has. And and it's run for years and years and years and doesn't look like it's going anywhere. And I think that is fascinating and the most impactful thing from this decade that I could think of. I went sort of personal and it's a theater experience that never really left me, especially because I was it sort of hit me unexpectedly, and that was a brief encounter at 54, no, Studio 54, uh, which was a knee-high theater production, and it was an adaptation of Noel Coward's movie, and it used his music as well. And there's also, it, it was just, it was theatrical in a way that I had never experienced theater before. It used a lot of illusions, um, and it just was like an impactful story. If you read into what Brief Encounter was about, it's a woman who meets a man in a train, and she's married, and they can't be together, but it's essentially Noel Coward not being able to live his life as an out man. And it just it incorporated skiffle music, which was is sort of like, like if you don't know what that is, it's like what the Beatles started as, and they sort of broadened their sound. And it was just delightful. And the show ended with like a jam in the back of the theater of them doing skiffle versions of modern pop songs. I saw it twice in one week. I wish I had seen it more. And it it it's almost it's always like my knee jerk reaction for a question like this. So I thought that must be right. We were joking before we started recording about everyone's answer being Hamilton, which mine is not. But I was going to say the different ways that people are trying to make tickets more accessible. Thinking about Signature and, you know, and their $25 tickets, um, the Ham for Ham Lotto and what that, and then moving a lot of the lottos online, which is great for people like me who can't stand in line outside all day for things like uh, Shakespeare in the Park or Hamilton or, and all, so many shows have followed suit. Orrin's friend doing the ability to pay off someone else's ticket for slave play, uh, I think is really interesting as well. Um, I mean, we have we have a very long way to go to make Broadway accessible and cheap. It hasn't been for years, and it's just getting worse. But I think there are creative problem solvers out there who are trying to make things a little more accessible uh, in interesting ways, and I hope that that is a trend that continues until we dismantle it all. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. This question kind of stumped me. I mean, in terms of like my personal uh, personal impact, I wrote about this in Exeunt, um, seeing the interminable suicide of Gregory Church by Daniel Kitson 
made me become a theater critic. Like it was a long, weird road, but I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be doing this if I hadn't gone to the theater and seen that show. And it suddenly just like clicked a light on in my head and made me re-engage in theater and art in a particular way. But I was also thinking kind of thematically, structurally about the shows that I saw in the last decade. And a lot of ways I kept coming back to an octoroon. I mean, in terms of like moments in the theater that shocked me, surprised me, changed the way I thought about theater. I started thinking about the way in which that play opened up a certain conversation with, particularly in my head, white audiences um, to have a conversation about race. And since then, lots of other plays have been having in my experience, more complicated conversations about race, sometimes with white audiences, sometimes with all audiences. But I don't know, like for me, and maybe again, this is always through the, your own lens and it's a limited lens. And I, you know, didn't see a lot of theater before the last decade. I had sort of a period of time where I wasn't seeing theater. So, you know, maybe I missed the thing that was the, you know, that begat an octoroon in a lot of ways. But um, for me, that was just something that I kind of kept coming back to, even just its experimental structure and form and approach and the use of, I mean, particularly the Sarah Benson production, the use of music. I mean, I saw a production in Philly that was so different that had used music completely differently with a live band and live chickens. And I mean, it was a, it is a play that has a very flexible format that, a lot of artists can imprint on it in interesting ways, but it also kind of reminds me how much, how experimental some major off-Broadway work has become since then and, you know, in an ongoing way. I don't know if this is either like too personal or too self-serving, but since I've only lived in New York City since 2012, the most impactful theater moment for me was just looking back at my own life. Mm -hmm. And just realizing what a fucking strange decade it was. I start, you know, in 2011, I remember I was living in Costa Rica. I was in school. I was blogging about movies. And I, you know, I went to the theater maybe once every six months because there's not much of a theater offering over there. And I remember that I would, you know, I, I hooked up with a lot of tourists that visited Costa Rica. <laughs> and one of them often brought me back Time Out magazines. And I was just like, oh, God, I wish I could see all of this on Broadway and all of this sounds incredible. And then someone pointed out to me the other day, uh, they went, hey, th did you realize that you reviewed, that you wrote the very last Broadway review of the decade for mm. the New York Times? And I was like, huh? And they were like, yeah, that Harry Connick Jr. show was the last Broadway yeah. opening of the decade, and, and you reviewed it. And I just went like, holy shit, like, you know, I'm a... Latino gay immigrant and how did this happen? So I guess I'm just very thankful for, you know, having been welcomed into. It was destiny. My most impactful moment was in 2011 when I was a tourist in Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> Dirty dog. Just 50 bucks and a copy of Time Out in my bag. And what do you know? No, I'm uh, I wish. The, uh, no, I, I've been thinking about this since people started talking. Um, I think for me, and this could just be the fact that I work in this industry, but I have been really interested in the the breaking down of the wall between commercial and nonprofit theater. I think it's actually had an incredible effect on what has been produced in the last decade, how it's been produced, and where. So much of what's been on Broadway the last few years, uh, the last decade, has been work that has started in a specifically nonprofit sphere, 
Um, so many shows have gone to Broadway that had no business being there as a director. I mean, the fact that in the last decade, Ars Nova and Club Thumb have both have been represented on Broadway is astonishing and wonderful. And of course, that has financial implications that are not all great. Um, I think that when commercial and nonprofit uh, theaters start to rub shoulders too much, bad things can happen. Hashtag late stage capitalism, but uh, it's bit, but I think that that in terms of pure impact has affected the conversation, um, which extends from everything to what's on stage to who gets to see it, how much does it cost, who has access to it. All those questions sort of bubble up because the quote unquote artsy side of our business and the commercial side of our business that wall is so permeable now, and I think that that's had a profound impact. And all of that is kind of encapsulated in Hamilton in a weird way. Because that was, I think, the tipping point where a show used a downtown space to springboard to Broadway, and it was this enormous hit, and then people started to copy it in a weird... I could talk all day about this. <laughs> all right. While we should definitely always celebrate the great shows that exist and have existed previously, um, I do want to highlight the re-envisioning of two shows specifically, and that was A Dollhouse Part 2, um, and then also The House That Will Not Stand. Those were two shows that were very popular um, in, their, in their day, and they made a splashy comeback and with some women who were not having it, and I loved it. Uh, also, I want to acknowledge very briefly Ain't No More by Jordan E. Cooper and Our Lady of Chabejo by Katori Hall. That Our Lady of Chabejo, I mean, it literally was like, now that theater was shaking in a good way in that show. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then uh, more specifically, I think Good Grief at the Vineyard by Ngozi Anyanwu was amazing. It was a beautiful love story. And I love that it flipped the switch and it centered the black goddess. That was really amazing. And it contrasting, contrasted sort of uh, the whitewashing of history since everyone knows uh, humanity started out in Africa. So I thought that, I mean, just the way that all came together at the end was very beautifully done. And even the way they had the, the performers high up above the ground kind of looking down was amazing at Earth. And then also, I have to give a shout out to Infoniso Adelphia. Audia and Cloris Snatch Joy attended a reading at Manhattan Theater Club. And that show was so moving. Having like your ancestors guide your life and move you for it was really transcending. And it kind of straddles two decades because that was the last show of the nine play cycle she's writing and I'm really looking forward to seeing the complete cycle here in New York um, hopefully <laughs> uh, in this c d coming decade very soon Hamilton <laughs> <laughs> it's the only show I can think of in the last 15-20 years that has actually gone outside of the bubble of theater that exists in TV, exists in film. It's a cultural reference. It's a point people have now riffed off of using hip hop for other things, as well as going back through our founding forefathers and, and actually examining their history. Um, it's one of the few plays that crashed the public theater's website when they were started selling tickets. It's the only play back then I paid full price for from Lindsay. Uh, I would never pay $80 like three, four years ago, 
Oh yeah, from Nicole, and like <laughs> I got it from Lindsay, but yeah. And Octoroon, within the bubble of theater, Octoroon, to see a play that almost didn't happen because of uh, a tumultuous rehearsal period, actually not only get revived and reading it in class, seeing it at Soho Rep, which I thought was very good, but not quite there, and then seeing the rewrite at theater for a new audience and seeing a trajectory of 10 years. You want to talk about Strange Loop taking 10 years, Hamilton took 10 years, and then Octoroon having this journey in this decade from being almost dead in the crib to now being considered one of the top 10, top five dramas of the decade. Yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised. To, well, I'm actually not surprised, but three of us are talking about an Octoroon. When I came up with this question, I sort of casually thought about this moment and thought, maybe I'm going to pick this moment. And then ever since for a few weeks, I keep thinking, yeah, this is the moment, <laughs> which is near the end of that play in the Soho reproduction. The uh, back wall of the set is the front of a house, and there is a like big coffinous scene where everyone's running around. There's a lot of smoke. Everything's happening. And then the house, the front of the house falls down Buster Keaton style and knocks uh, thousands of cotton balls into the audience and sort of shocking and exciting way. And that is probably the best like stage trick I've ever seen. And it just found, I found it inspiring and interesting and great. And I like that production a lot. And uh, I mean, that moment did win Mimi Liana MacArthur Grant. So <laughs> I think that's sort of one of those things that sticks with me as like the perfect example of a moment of theater that, can stick with you. So this is uh, the infamous Isaac Butler question. Uh, what performer slash performance this year moved your Kinsey number? Made you a little more gay? More straight? I don't know. Tell me. Allie Stroker. Like, again, didn't see so many shows, and they weren't very sexy shows, the ones that I saw. I mean, as we all know, this Oklahoma fucks. So... Um, <laughs> It, it was hard not to be it, even God, I don't know how they pulled that off because Oklahoma itself is just so fucked up, but whatever. It was a great, great production. And she turned like a song that, that I don't even know how it existed when it existed in the first place into this like, like sex positive anthem. And she was hot doing it. And I love her from the days of the Glee Project. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, baby. Oh, I watched Glee Project. Glee Project. I did. I'm going to say Lauren Patton. Two moments, specifically singing You Ought to Know. Oh, my God. Oh, yes, that was Oh, good. my God. And I was like the second row, and I was like, there's all this power coming out. It was amazing. Um, and then secondly, in her finale appearance, which is in that that like lesbian standard Hawaiian print button-down thing, you know, <laughs> and a big, beautiful earring. And I just, oh, I loved it. So specifically those two moments of Lauren Patton. Yes. I don't know if I can say it on st her on stage, but I would have to say Marissa Tomei, who happened to come to a critic's breakfast luncheon that I was working at and she just walked in and I mean she is so ravishingly beautiful and just breezily casually wandering around and I'm just like I mean granted I had already sort of tripped over myself when Will Eno walked in so like I mean my level of being an idiot in front of celebrities has a pretty low threshold but um yeah I don't know I mean Rose Tattoo was sort of a very weird it's a weird play it was a not great production but she and Eamon Elliott, you know, made the best of it. And um, yeah, I just, Marissa Tomei. 
I thought you were going to say, granted, I had already slept with Marissa Tomei. <laughs> but I was reminded. In Costa Rica. In Costa Rica, yeah. <laughs> Remember, uh, speaking of which, that there was a movie this year, a Hollywood movie, in which it was implied that Marissa Tomei and John Favreau had sex? Yeah. <laughs> Spider-Man Far From Home. For the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to hope I have a better shot than John Favreau, but okay, maybe not. I concur, and I had actually seen The Rosa 2 at Williams Tower in 2016, and Marisa Tomei just keeps getting sexier, and I don't get it. I don't I don't understand it. She, she's also a powerful witch, I think. And my other one was I loved, 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 loved Crystalline Lloyd's uh, Joe and Kate Hamill's Little Women. And it was the first, because I, you know, I, we were talking about this earlier, and I, I really like Amy for some reason, and I've always felt like Joe's like very mean to her. But Joe, uh, you know, when Crystalline put on the pants, I was like, oh, oh, okay, okay. I feel something here. So that was incredible. There was a show earlier this year uh, that I think inaugurated MCC's new brick-and-mortar home called The Light by Loy Webb, which is a play I enjoyed. Um, But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about (laughs) McKinley Belcher III, (laughs) who is a man that I... Could not the, the whole as we all rushed to Google. You look his ass up. That's what I'm doing right now. You look his ass up as I talk to you. <laughs> so the whole because okay the, the whole show is sort of it's about um, how people can have very different opinions about the, shall we say the Me Too movement in a household. Um, and it was very uh, wonderfully uh, uh, articulate about that. Uh, congratulations, Lloyd Webb. But McKinley Belcher plays like, the whole point is that he's like this perfect husband and maybe he's not so perfect by the end of the show. But even during the moments where it is clear that his character is not the greatest guy in the world, I still wanted to absolutely live in that very well-appointed Chicago apartment with him. <laughs> yeah. He is handsome is what I'm saying to you. I actually was hanging out with him last night. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. At a soldier's play, though. I was just an audience. (laughs) But I wanted to be like, hey, should I meet you backstage? I mean, what's good, boo? What's up? Yes, and I saw him in the in the in the light, and there that's an intimate space at MCC. And I I mean, I think you know, of course, you know, he's an actor, but of course. I, I don't know, maybe it's he gets cast for that body. I mean, just saying. Uh, and also, shout out to Loy uh, A. Webb for an, another great, uh, powerful piece about love. And it's a black cast, black story, but not centered that only on blackness. So, yay, yay for that. Um, I'm going to have to say Liza Colon Zayas and Halfway Bees Go to Heaven. I've seen her before in between Riverside and Crazy. I was like, oh, she's cute. But <laughs> in this show, I was like, wait a minute. What happened? <laughs> she's so authoritative, and she will fight somebody if they try to touch my juiciness. I was like, okay, if I, if I were into women, I mean, I might have to date her. So I'm going to have to say her. Uh, and she was Sarge in Halfway Bees Go to Heaven. But she really brought the the maleness that I need in my life. I'm going to go with Becca Blackwell and Hurricane Diane. We could say, is this a room? But I'll go with Hurricane Diane, (laughs) lesbian mother nature energy, just oozing out on stage with hurricanes and power. And uh, I was sitting in the front row the closing night or closing matinee. I think it was on a Sunday. And 
I could feel the energy of the audience getting aroused, getting intrigued, <laughs> thinking, would I want an affair with Becca Blackwell? The answer is yes, you do. Um, as Maximus token bisexual, this question is difficult because uh, it, I can't be pulled. Mm. It's, yeah. I, I, I can't. However, as I have been doing, I have just picked people from all genders. There we go. <laughs> who were hot on stage. Um, so I'm going to start with Becca Blackwell. I agree. Yep. I mean, that entire play is about how hot they are. Like, <laughs> Larry Owens in Strange Loop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Zoe Winters in Heroes of the Fourth Turn. <laughs> the human body is disgusting. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, so... I um oh, I was like, what are you into? <laughs> <laughs> so intrigued. The plant from Little Shop of Horrors. Yes. <laughs> I want it to engulf my body. Four. Got it. Four. 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 We're talking about moving Kinsey numbers. Is that that's moving in the X Y yeah. axis of this Kinsey um, numbers, right? No, but seriously, um, I, I was googling to try to figure out which of the urchins from Little Shop of Horrors I wanted to name because I they they are always presented together. And I don't know who is who, uh, but I think Joy Woods is the one that I'm trying to find. I thought she was incredibly sexy as the one of the three urchins who presents um, slightly masculine of center. And similarly, I thought Tammy Blanchard was incredibly sexy as Audrey in a way that was very different from the way that Audrey is typically portrayed. I don't know if that actually moves my Kinsey number, though, because I think my attraction to Tammy Blanchard in Little Shop of Horrors is like any gay man's attraction to late stage Judy Garland. So, uh, you know, she, it's the, it's like that. And, and, you know, Tammy won an Emmy playing young Judy Garland years ago. So like uh, there, there's all, it's a spectrum. Sexuality is a spectrum. That's what I'm saying. It's a spectrum of Judy's. Is that what you're yes. saying? <laughs> what was the worst case of theater FOMO you suffered this year? I would say for myself, uh, about 10 minutes ago when you all yelled at me for not seeing a strange loop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's the answer. I mean, actually, my answer reflects our behavior as to shaming you about that. Because so mine was Feifu because I didn't get to see it. And also like, fuck Feifu, because everybody in the interview started yelling at me because I didn't get to see it. And I was expressing why I didn't get to see it, because I was losing my fucking mind. And I had no time left. And I was leaving town. And it was really upsetting. And I wanted to see it. And I know how important it is. And all the, and like, I didn't actually need the internet jumping down my throat and shaming me about my theater going. And I realized we have a tendency sort of to go back to David's point in part one about, you know, being kind of abusive to people about their fandom and how they're expressing themselves or what they're doing and weighing in when no one fucking invited you to the conversation. Like I was having a conversation with somebody about like, oh no, I'm not going to get to see it either, you know, but like, let's be quiet because people are going to yell at us. And literally over on my Twitter feed, someone jumps in to start yelling at me about it. And, you know, it was just really upsetting because I'm pretty sure the show isn't about abusing people to go see it. And I, you know, I just think we should all be better because, A, theater's expensive. People have lives. Mental health is important. People should take a break. People should not always be seeing all the shows all the time just because the internet tells them to. So, you know, like I realize I come, I have a very privileged position because I do see a lot of theater. I do see a lot of it professionally. I don't pay for a lot of it. 
at the same time, like it takes up a lot of space in my head and takes a lot of energy and writing about theater, absorbing theater means you carry a lot with you and sometimes you actually need to stop. And I took two weeks off this year and I haven't had two weeks off from the theater in two years. And I mean, I, I, need, I was on a cruise ship and people kept saying, are you going to go see the show? No, I was not going to see any of the shows on the cruise ship because I, I needed that break. And Faithu was happening like right before I left town for that. So I'm sorry I didn't see it. I know it's important, but also, you know, be good to yourselves. I have no theater FOMO because I went to the theater too much. <laughs> but, but my FOMO was all the museum exhibits that I missed, like the Frida Kahlo, uh, the Brooklyn Museum, that I was like, I'm going to go this week. And then like a fucking matinee showed up, so I never went. And the Pierre Cardin at the Brooklyn Museum. Like a lot of the things at the Brooklyn Museum, actually. And also at the Whitney. So And oh my God, all the movies. Like I was very ashamed of myself because I only went to one movie in October. No, not only, not even went to one movie. I watched one movie the entire month of October in my bathtub because I was doing an interview with one of the actors. And that was it. And I was very ashamed of myself. I did not see Feifu either. But here's my thing, right? It was a Tifana, right? Yeah. Right. So Tifana has this thing where they will run a show for 20 years and then and you oh you have like 20 years to see it but this show ran for 20 minutes and so i was like oh i'll go see it in its third month of performances and then i someone was like oh it closes today and i didn't care for that um and it was entirely my fault but i blame uh, other people <laughs> I, I felt the same way i was like ah eh, stefana maybe it's not going to be great and then i went to it cuz my friend was in it and I was like, well, I got to see this if my friend's in it. And I was like, begrudgingly, like, oh, it's going to suck because it's Stefana. And then I went and I was like, oh, it's really good. No, I didn't think it was going to suck. I, I, had a, I had a feeling it was going to be great. I knew how rare an opportunity it was to see this show. I just thought it was going to run for a while. They got to bring it back. They better bring it back. I also have Fefu written down in my notes. I was distraught. That I miss it. And I, I, at the end, I almost had an in with tickets, but it didn't work out. And then by the time I was like, okay, I just have to buy the ticket, I could not. It was all sold out, and I missed the show. I have no regrets about not seeing Feifu because it ran too short, and that's on them. And hopefully they'll bring it back, period. Like, I that's have fun. That was one. Exactly. Yeah. I do have FOMO about Octet. I have no reason. That ran forever, and I just didn't see it. And I was like saying to people, I was in the Signature Theater bathroom, and they have a channel where you can tune into the different shows going on. And I tuned into at least one song for Octet. So I got to hear one section of it, and it made me uh, feel even sadder that I didn't get a chance to see it, even though some people here said it sucked. But whatever. I liked it. Also, I saw Fefu. What did y'all did? So I feel better about it. <laughs> I know. Extended. Yeah, I know. I'm a disaster. But hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we haven't seen the last of that show. I have FOMO for the Skittles musical. Yes. I, I wasn't invited. The Skittles musical. Well, I wasn't invited, so I couldn't go. And I also thought it was going to be stupid, so I didn't go. It was both. But then I learned that it was good. I thought it was stupid because I wasn't invited. <laughs> That's fair. It sounded stupid. It happened. No, no, no. But I also just like wouldn't have had access anyway. I was out of town that day. I have three on my list. Two, which are my own damn fault because I didn't buy a ticket either because they were expensive or the timing didn't work out, which are Fefu and Fleabag. And the third, which I couldn't get a ticket, but it's I'm not angry, 
which is Hercules. And I'm not angry because I actually think the move to having an all lottery distribution system for the tickets was the right thing to do. I think it was the fair thing to do. And I think it's okay that I didn't get to see it because it means that other people did. But I'm sad I didn't get people to see it. Me did that. Oh, yeah. And, li- and like, what do you mean I can't? You have to talk yeah. into the microphone, Jack. Yeah. Um, <laughs> better if he doesn't. No, he does not. And to my credit, I did not reach out to any of my friends who work at the public to try to, because I knew everyone was probably bombarding you. Uh, I entered the lottery on the days that I could go and I didn't get in, and that's okay. And I hope that there will be another opportunity to see it in some form somewhere. I was going to say, I like the half this table missed Feifu. Like, it makes me feel so much better. Thank you. Ugh, I forgot about Hercules, and now I'm mad about it again. <laughs> no, I was just thinking that. Especially because my dumb eight-year-old niece got to see it. What does she know? She's eight. Uh, so. Wait, wait, but that wasn't my real answer. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, luckily, luckily, I did have like master school blinders on, so I wasn't aware of Fifu until I saw this this bombardment of Nicole on, on Twitter. Um, and then I was like, oh, damn, I guess I'm missing that, too. <laughs> um, but the one show, and I was aware of Octet, and I did want to see that, but the one show I was most aware of and upset that I missed was What the Constitution Means to Me. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I there was ample time, and I knew about it, but it also, I just couldn't, you know, oh, well. What show do you wish more audiences had a chance to see? I'm going to say Barbershop Chronicles, which played at BAM very briefly in December for like three days. I don't know. The BAM runs are so short. Um, I can't even get the word out before it's already closed. But it was a production from the National Theater in the UK, which again is sort of really amazing that it came here and got a very, very small run. But it was so joyful and beautiful and just full of jubilance. Like you walked in and all the actors were on stage inviting people from the audience down on stage to come and get fake haircuts. It's set around barbershops, sort of, it it uses the African diaspora. And so there are barbershops all over the world and the characters are all in different barbershops in different places, sort of just, you know, chit-chatting and whatever, talking about their lives. And it is based on real conversations with people. And so there was just this energy in the room of just welcome and joy. And I was about to leave on my trip and it was the last show I saw before leaving and it just left me in such a state of sort of peace and happiness and just pleasure like theatrical pleasure because it used a theater space in such a positive wonderful way and it only ran for a couple nights which was just so disappointing so I hope some people got to see it if you are a queer person who has sat through the collective 76 hours of Angels in America (laughs) and the Inheritance it is your duty to go to one and two which is running through January 12th it's one of the best things I have ever seen, and go. I'm going to talk about something I saw in London, actually, which I just really want to come here, which is a show I saw at the National Theater called Faith, Hope, and Charity by Alexander Zeldin, and I just find his work to be really provocative and interesting and strange. It's set in a essentially a soup kitchen somewhere in England, I think possibly, probably London, but I'm not sure, and I just find his brand of theater to be just odd enough to get some I just want people to see it here mostly I want to see how that show and that work bounces off of an American audience um so Alexander Zeldin if you see that name show up in America in the next year or so go check it out gonna do a little self-promoting here I was working uh with some of my community arts folks in Harlem to produce this show called my Harlem tis of thee 
And it was written by Stephanie Berry. You all have seen her. She's done, like, a lot of TV and movie work. Um, but also, she started her own theater company. And she wrote this show after interviewing several folks from the neighborhood and kind of juxtaposing their experiences of Harlem and blending together the, the essence, the history uh, the transition with all of the gentrification going on. And I do wish, uh, we, we had a short run, a very, very short run, but we're wanting to bring it back so that more people can have a chance to see this show and learn about the richness of, of Harlem and the, and the legacy that is there. And also, you know, kind of encourage people to learn, especially the new people moving in, to learn all of that as they come to the neighborhood so that we can, you know, be harmonious in Harlem. There's also Ebony Noel Golden's tour of Harlem that involved dancing uh, and singing and walking down the street that I missed. And I think in general for dance, I have so much FOMO. Uh, see, I don't have the ticket magic, Jack, especially when it comes to BAM. As Nicole said, there are so many amazing international dance shows Africa at BAM. Exactly. Amazing every year and I'm it's like, only yeah. like a few days because dancers have to rest their body but there was a show by a gay greek choreographer and i love his work i've seen it online it was coming to bam but only that weekend of course i had a bunch of appointments and i couldn't make it and so half the shows at bam i have fomo over i need that magic <laughs> I wish that more people could have seen uh, one of my favorite plays of the year, a play titled after the collective noun for female identifying 20-somethings living in NYC in the 2010s by Haley Rashan. You can just call it collective noun. It, you know, it was a corkscrew. It ran very, very briefly. And things like that don't really pick up until they're already sort of over because that's when the reviews come in. That's when word of mouth sort of starts hitting everyone. And yeah, so I hope that one comes back. I mean, it's just, I, I wish there was... I wish there was a way for more things to come back. Although someone, I want to say maybe Adam Feldman was just talking about how the return engagement seems to be a new trend for 2019, and maybe we'll be seeing more of that. Uh, I've got two. Uh, sorry. One is the other Fornes play that came to New York this year, Promenade, which uh, was only two nights at City Center, but was just an explosion of joy uh, and uh, so wonderful. The other, if you'll pardon the now more than ever, is uh, Nassim, which was a play that ran uh, also at City Center about cross-cultural understanding um, with an Iranian artist, playwright. It was a show that's like, it was a little simplistic and um, had a little bit of a like bedtime story quality to it, but I found it incredibly moving. And when we're uh, at a moment of uh, intense escalation with Iran, it feels like it's the kind of show that a lot of people who are making decisions might mm. want to sit and watch and listen to. If only we had a president who saw theater. Mm. I, I might be cheating a little bit because the show closed in 2019, although I did not see it in 2019, but I did see it three times in 2018, which is Head Over Heels. Uh, I loved that show so much. It ran longer than, like, <laughs> I saw it, early in previews and I was like oh this gone close <laughs> like <laughs> and it ran a lot longer than I thought it would I think it made it three no no it started in July and it didn't close till January so it went like six months but it was just joyful and like representation like we haven't seen physically gender wise uh, in in a lot of different ways 
it was just so good. I do think it's a it's like a good show that will get regional and community theater productions if you have a brave community theater. But I, for for being on Broadway, that Jack, that's like a show. I know that's not maybe the kind of show you were talking about, but that's a show to me that I'm like, how did this get to Broadway? And I love that it did. And it was in the Hudson, which is a beautiful theater. And I'm so glad that we've taken it back. And in 2020, I also would like to see us reclaim the Mark Hellinger. Uh, I'm going to go with actually a show that Jose mentioned early on, which is Erica Schmidt's adaptation of Macbeth, Mac Space. Beth. I mean, we need more Macbeth adaptations like we need Holes in the Head. But um, I think that it had a really great uh, framing device of putting it in these sort of wild and witchy prep school girls. It did remind me a lot of our Dear Dead, Dr- Dear Dead Drug Lord, which I also really loved. Also, the stagecraft in the production was so cool. All I was talking about with people who were looking for stuff to go right after I saw it and I just, I want to discuss it more with people. So I would like more people to see it. And it is coming to Hunter. It actually starts, what, this week? On January 6th through February 22nd. So um, I will be excited. And if you do go see it, talk to me about it. Because I want to talk about it. What made you cry at the theater this year? I didn't want to be for because nothing makes me cry. So nothing made me cry last year. Okay, well... Unlike Jose, (laughs) I had a breakdown, uh, again, separate from the one that I mentioned um, at Witness by Nia Witherspoon. This one was at Tina Turner. Okay? Thought it was going to be all fun and games. (laughs) I was not ready. So her grandmother, um, who was played by... Myra Lucretia Taylor. We've seen her quite a few shows, um, including The Lucky Ones. (laughs) Um, Sorry, you guys. Just (laughs) thinking back to our previous conversation. But uh, Tina growing up in Nutbush, Tennessee, and having this tender relationship with her grandmother, I was trying to think. I was like, what was really new and different about this show from the movie? What really stood out? And to me, I was like, the way Katori Hall wrote that, I think, was very beautiful. And, okay, there was one moment. I was like, oh, it reminds me of my grandma. And there was another moment. I was like, oh. She's so inspiring. She's encouraging her and pushing her toward her dreams, just like my grandma. And then the third moment, when Tina was actually leaving and the screen popped up and you saw kind of, or the illusion of a car leaving, driving down the road. And it reminded me of the very last moment I saw my grandmother alive and I mean, she looked so sad. She she knew it was the last time she she would see me, but I had no idea. She was giving me a hug, and she was like, wait, wait. And I was like, no, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. I was already off at undergrad. And she was like, no, wait. And I was like, lady, go in the house, you know? And I, like, when I was driving away, I was looking back, like, why is she standing outside like that? Um, and, I mean, I just kind of... Ooh, it, it hit me really hard. Uh, I was with Deep, and she was trying to console me, so I wasn't alone this time. Um, but this was also the night that a dancer, um, or Tina's sister, actually injured her leg. So they stopped the whole show 
And I wasn't sure if it was because the dancer injured her leg or because my grandmother was like, take a moment, honey, and a rest. The two things converged. Your grandma hurt that dancer? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, don't get it twisted. She will come for you. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. She she will be louder than the house in um, (laughs) the benevolent spirit. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But yes, I, I was able to kind of take a break and collect myself before, you know, going on with all of the fun music. Oh my God. The moment that made me cry just now in theater was Penny describing her grandmother and uh, Tina. Uh, and then the other moment that made me cry was Black History Museum uh, at Here Art Center. I was reading the letters of black people who were enslaved, writing to each other, the love letters of people who had been sold and they loved each other and trying to get back together when, of course, there's no internet, there's no phone, there's all these things and you're been separated uh and then kareem lucas one of the actors in the show who's also a playwright uh, they have private moments so he took me aside and told me kind of like sleep no more a private moment story about two black people in this couple and how they were separated uh and then brought back together at the end of the war and they had to fight to find each other and that made me cry. I mean, that was like one-on-one private moment. Here's a real story. And I was like fighting back. I'm not going to cry. Like it was just right on the lip, right on the edge of my eyes, just like an entire ocean of, of tears. Uh, so thank you, Black History Museum. And Kareem Lucas. I'm a lot like Jose. I don't really cry very often at the theater. I do sometimes. Um, I probably did involuntarily cry when I was getting my headache destroyed, uh, as in my earlier story. (laughs) To be a little vulnerable, um, I had a pretty rough professional year, and I did have a moment where I was setting out on a long bike ride, had my phone uh, on my handlebars, just like with my stats on it, and I did get a notification right as I started moving of an opportunity that I had applied to and really emotionally invested myself in. And I did see the first line that was a, that I was rejected. And so I did have a little nice, a nice little cry while moving very fast on a road. <laughs> Immersive theater. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier that I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed during God said this. The only two other times I remember crying this year at the theater, although there were probably more because I cried pretty easily, was at the end of part one of The Inheritance, despite... By that point, the show had already lost me, but the moment, which was stolen from the movie Longtime Companion, um, <laughs> was so effective. Regardless, like I knew I was being manipulated, and and like it, and and I was mad at the playwright, and it, it didn't matter because because I, I am easily manipulated. Uh, the other was at the end of Merrily We Roll Along that the Fiasco Theater did at the Roundabout Off Broadway this year. Again, the song Our Time kind of makes me cry no matter what. But this is the first time I've seen a production where I was the age that the characters are at the beginning of the show, end of the timeline. So it like real hit me real hard of like, what does it mean to be 41 and looking back at what you thought your dreams were when you were mm-hmm. 20? And uh, it, and there were there was a lot I loved about that production. There was a lot I didn't love about that, about that production. But that moment really just worked on me the way it's supposed to. I had a couple, of course, uh, Kate Baldwin singing back to before. <laughs> um, for, for a lot of reasons. I love, 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 love Ragtime. Um, I love Mother. I love Kate Baldwin. And it was only a few months after Maren Maisie had died. So I feel like any any performance of that song for the next five years is 
is going to just make me feel her presence. Um, and then also I have a friend who's a, a musical theater writer, Joel Escher, and he did a show at the Players Theater called Joey and Ron with Lewis Perlman. And it was a, a fun, like Archie's-esque, uh, comic booky pop group, uh, fun little, that sounds dismissive but that's not what I mean it was a fun musical and it just I just love seeing my friends work and it wasn't emotional at all except for that it was like my friend's work that he was putting on stage um and actually it was in a theater that we used to perform in together which was like another layer because I did musical improv and he was our pianist so yeah just to give it buckets of sobs after God said this like just whole through the whole end of the show um also two or three times during our dear dread dear god damn our dear dead damn drug lord um specifically with uh pipe at the end in this uh, sort of the reckoning that she has with her sister's memory and talking about how she's gonna stop being quiet and stop smiling because people are telling her to smile and like kind of breaking out into her own and it just brought up all these like teenage feelings in me and I just kept like it would come out and then it would subside and then it would come out and then it would subside um so that was the end of that show I I cry at the theater all the time I cry when I'm being manipulated I cry when I'm not being manipulated like I'm I'm definitely a crier all the time um but I think particularly Tony Kushner's doppelganger expressing despair in a bright room called day like hit me really, really hard. Like, that was a play that I, the first act happened, I was like, I'm okay. I mean, I see what's going on intellectually, but it it wasn't really grabbing me. And that was a show that really turned around for me in the second act, which I feel like someone had tweeted out, does the show ever get better in the second act? And I'm like, no, never. And then it absolutely happened to me. And I don't know, like, particularly in his voice at this moment with everything happening, it just, it was, it was, I don't know, it was really hard to hear. Also in Novena's for, Novena's for a Lost Hospital, Kusi Cram's play about the closing of St. Vincent's, um, the changing neighborhood in the West Village. Um, I had sort of a weird connection with her writing the play. I, the Rattlestick had sort of collected a bunch of people to come and talk about the West Village and living in the West Village. And I ended up getting invited and performing a piece I wrote about my first apartment in New York City. And, uh, and, and Kusi was there and she was sort of at that moment sort of building what would become Novena's for a lost hospital sort of from that experience and the monologue that the woman gives at the hair salon sort of about this changing neighborhood and about um uh, you know your life and the world around you changing in that way you know just sort of also hit me because it had been you know that had been my neighborhood and then it wasn't my neighborhood and my relation to St. Vincent's sort of changed over the years too and you know it, it, it was a lot and I cried in greater Clements. I mean because anything Edmund Dunneman does makes me cry apparently did anyone leave any shows early and what did you leave no I left the Kung Fu show at the shed. During, oh, oh, Dragon Spring Phoenix. Dragon Spring Phoenix Rise. Oh, I saw that show and, and I stayed till the end. Wow, wow. Uh, I, I mean, it. Okay, let me just say this. I guess they were doing non traditional casting. The father was a white man, the daughter was an Asian lady asking for his permission for everything. And he was training a black man who kept calling him master 
on stage the whole time. I was like, what is happening? It just felt so very wrong. And then they were trying to be, I guess they wanted it to look exactly like a film. And so they were talking in an odd way. I don't know. The show... No, it's that they were not trained actors nor trained singers who had to act and sing. That's why. I really was trying to rationalize this. I was like, what? Is this intentional? No, no, no. They they are uh, martial artists who don't do much else that they, uh, it was a bad, it was a bad move. I mean, but I, I will say that the show was aesthetically beautiful. That last act before intermission, the choreography, uh, movement choreography by Akram Khan, it was beautiful. They had dancers or uh, kung fu (laughs) folks coming down from the sky. Oh my gosh, I mean, it was like aerialists. They were dancing in water. That was very beautiful. The strobe lights were too much, and I was just thrown off by it. So I just had to excuse myself during intermission, which I usually don't do. It takes a lot to break me. (laughs) (laughs) But the height of the storm at MTC did that in about 15 to 20 minutes. And it was around the part where they're discussing what they should put in their salad or mushrooms, or was something where I looked at my friend who was only in town for a few days, and we both made that nod, and we're like, this is, this is the prison break moment. This is the time. And we left, and I was out in the lobby, putting on my coat, looking at the play on the monitor, hoping that there was something that would keep me, at least with my coat on, in the lobby, and I just did not see it. I'm sorry if it got better, but the salad moment just just took me out. So we left that and had an amazing time walking out of a theater so freeing, like Nicole and other people have said. It makes you feel alive again. There were a bunch of shows I should have left early. (laughs) I did not this year. Um, The things that I left early this year were like, I could technically leave early. There were like festival things with multiple performances that just ended up being really disappointing. Um, one thing that I mentioned multiple times on this show, uh, the New Masculinities Festival, being excited for, I stayed for mm, half of it, and I was like, mm, this, uh, most of these aren't very good. So <laughs> I kind of left. But I told you to go. <laughs> well, <laughs> whoops. Um, and then like I saw something at uh, Roulette called Folly Systems, which is like a bunch of experimental like music and multimedia performances and they were uh they're what you think of when you think experimental multimedia performance um not what you want it to be there is a songwriter whose work i have really enjoyed in cabaret and on albums who uh has not yet had a full-length show that has worked for me and there was one this year that would have been the fourth of his shows that I had seen. And my friend and I put it on our calendars as last chance. And we did not make it to the end. And that's all I'm going to say about that. I mean, I've already said that I haven't. But I do, I, ju- I don't, I don't begrudge anyone doing that, certainly. I just, and there are plenty of shows that I have that impulse. I don't know, I don't know if my brain will let me. I don't know. Like uh, one that I really was like, and if I hadn't been there with my friends, I don't know if I were seeing it by myself, maybe, I don't know if that would be harder or easier, but The Lightning Thief, I thought at intermission, I was like, I could not 
we could, instead we got drinks and stayed for the second half, and that didn't really help. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Do you? <laughs> I mean, I had one, but it was kind of an inadvertent one. I was at Scotland, PA, and then about like 15, 20 minutes into the show, I needed to violently vomit. And so I quickly like raced out of the theater. And I mean, I have to credit the front of house staff there is incredible they move so quickly they like directed me to the door so light wouldn't be cast on the like rest of the audience like there was a whole like they have a system for a bolter (laughs) (laughs) um and then I was like oh do I go back I decided to go back in and see the second half of it so sorry Scotland PA I hope the first half was good (laughs) quick shout out to whoever decorated the uh lobby for intermission they actually turned it into a restaurant which is pretty pretty cool so a little bit of immersive uh marketing there and the bloody mary at scotland pa was really fantastic i regret spending 27 dollars on a bloody mary but it was really good anyway i did not leave any shows but i want the broadway bounty hunter to find (laughs) the man who was sitting next to me at kiss me kate like i've said earlier I had been looking forward to this show for like three years and Kelly O'Hara shows up and she starts singing So In Love and the man sitting next to me started like clinking the eyes oh, in his no. cup. Uh, oh, oh, wait. <laughs> he, he went, ugh. And then as she was about to reach, you know, like the high note, he covered his ears. No. And yeah, and then during intermission, he left and didn't come back and I promised it was not because I murdered him. if you were hosting a panel at broadway con or off broadway con if you prefer what would it be i don't know what the title would be i had difficulty with this one too but it's something like how to purge the right from the theater 2020 has been dubbed the year of the stage manager because it is the 100th anniversary of the first stage manager contract on under an actor's equity contract. So I would want to do something to celebrate that by putting some of our favorite stage managers front and center, especially because I think their roles often invisible, often misunderstood, even misunderstood by their own colleagues, uh, often misunderstood by each other. <laughs> um, uh, but they serve such an important backbone of every production and uh i would like to help celebrate that damn it i was gonna do that i'm gonna come up with something else though i'm gonna i'm gonna think, I think you I'm can be on the panel i'll be on the panel yeah. i didn't have an idea but then we were just sort of talking and i'm just gonna just continue with my beating my drum of libraries and archivists and i think it would be really interesting to have a panel of performing arts librarians and archivists and discuss the kind of things they have in their collection maybe also discuss what what fans uh can do with their memorabilia that they have to make it last a little longer my friend actually just put up some playbills in her kitchen uh, in frames, and I immediately was like, "What's the what's the sunlight exposure to those? You want to rotate them because you can't; they're gonna fade." <laughs> and my brain has completely been lost to like uh, relative humidity and pH balance. Um, but I also I also did a um, my my final project. My capstone was about bootlegs in in archives. And I pulled, uh, I surveyed some artists who were not happy about them, which I completely understand. But I think, I think also understanding the the what research institutions bring to that kind of research, and that it's not necessarily a a money a money loser for you. 
or or whatever like your personal feelings about bootlegs is understandable like understanding the purpose of those institutions would also be helpful for for performers and and fans someone tweeted to me and was like oh I want to read it because I've gotten like many like bootlegs from those institutions and I was like no that's not what they're for who are you and I was like I'm not gonna give it to you um but I don't know I think I think that's that's an area of of the the community that that doesn't maybe even feel like a part of the community. All right. I, I'm not, I'm still fleshing out this idea because I was really excited about you're the stage manager. Um, but I'm glad that you did it. Um, I, I think we're going to we're gonna have some sort of like off-Broadway dance coven type thing. And um, I'm going to encourage everyone to bring all their old straight white man plays and we're gonna burn them and um we're gonna look forward to the new year without them i thought you were gonna say we're gonna add dance breaks to all the old white man plays <laughs> that that's my afternoon session <laughs> i like that um well, what are you gonna do with all the words that got burned there's no none to read you just dance instead well some shows will be burned some will have dance breaks added just put me in charge of all the seasons <laughs> give me all your plays i will make them better by putting a dance break in them. I feel like I've said this one before, so I don't know, maybe. Um, I'm, I'm obsessed with ethics and performance and the way in which artists use real-life material and, um, and the way in which they engage with audiences and how that can be done sort of ethically and uh, not. Um, I've, I feel like I've experienced some really bad work this year that uses other people's pain as your metaphor or your medium to express something else and and it's left me sort of very uncomfortable and I think it's an interesting topic that we should maybe talk more about. Also if you follow me on Twitter all I talk about are uh, theater walls and I don't mean like the actual walls the four walls of a theater I mean the designed walls stage walls and the way in which sort of stage design um, can really open up a work express a work and or completely throw you out of a show I've got a list of walls the top, I've got my top 10 walls of all time I'm I also probably secretly have a list of the top worst walls of all time um so I feel like I really could go deep on this subject okay shameless plug time on January 24th I have two panels at Broadway Con <laughs> <laughs> At 11 in the morning, I'm doing Token Theater Friends Live with special guests soon to be announced. And that afternoon at 3 p.m. or 4 p.m., I'm not sure yet, I'm going to be part and list what you were talking about with your kind of resolutions and hopes for the theater. Uh, we're going to do, be doing a panel on how to improve ticket access. So I hope to see all of you there. However, if I had my way and I could you know, do whatever kind of panel I wanted... I would do three hours at least on how I can find the Carrie, Miranda, Samantha, and Charlotte in every single musical in the world. <gasps> Boom. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Okay, everyone, get ready to register for. <laughs> the marketer knows how to do this. <laughs> Cultural conversations, implementing progressive theatrical learning and experience into your daily life. Now, we keep seeing all of these shows that are about change, that are about unity. <laughs> do we just watch it on stage or do we make it a reality? In this session, you'll learn. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sign me up. Sold. I really want to take this class now. <laughs> really briefly, I would say, I might have said this last year, but spirit in church in theater 
and uh, theater as a temple, specifically examining different cultures and what they do technique wise, uh, Af- different African uh, theater diaspora techniques, Nigerian theater, the Celtic, Irish, whatever traditions that bring in spirit into the room, whether it's a ghost or a thin place uh, seance or whatever that thing is. I'm fascinated by that because we all feel it. And I know it, there's a technique to it. And then I, I love the point where technique meets that spirit. And I, but I can't find any place that actually focuses on that. So um, that would be my panel. Um, and actually, I was so caught up in my theatrics, I didn't read the rest of my notes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say I chose that because um, I, I think people underestimate the value of talkbacks. Um, and kind of guided conversations even between uh, folks who have attended a performance together. Some shows, like, you just can't watch it and walk away. Like, you really need to kind of talk through it, uh, examine it, and really um, just see where the value is, where where the error is, what would you have done if you were in this situation. Um, And a few of the shows uh, that stood out that I was like, this show needs a talk back. This show needs counselors. Um, Jeremy O'Harris's Slave Play, which is why I thought it worked better off-Broadway, because they had that at the theater before it transitioned. Also, The Light at MCC, just talking about that whole... Yeah, me too, all that, and and yeah, definitely. Uh, I actually went on the day when there was a talk back, but for a show like that, I think it would be great to have it consistently. And then also behind the sheet at, yeah, Studio Ensemble Theater. And for those of you who missed that, it was actually talking about the father of gynecology and how he's kind of praised and worshipped, um, but the toll that it took on all of this, the slave, black slave women that he practiced on and just kind of how that it links to today within the healthcare system. Actually, not healthcare, health business in America uh, that we have here and the issues and challenges we face here in this country with that. Walking out of the light, literally an old white guy in front of me turned to his wife and said, uh, I think she was lying. No. Like after all that, no, no, sir, you no. need a talk back. Oh, no. Just a one-on-one talk back. It's me yelling. <laughs> after the talk back, if you have not made progress, you get a slap. Who wants to invest in my theater? <laughs> I do. So to close this out, what performer in a small role in 2019 would you like to see in a true smash hit star vehicle big to do in 2020? So there was a musical that we all heard about and that um, I'm not sure anyone here but me saw because it was called Only Human and it did star Gary uh, Excuse Busey. me, we saw it together. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't... I pictures of us in front I, of the poster. I wasn't looking at you, David. <laughs> So it was, it was, uh, it was, the show was not good. Uh, it was a not good show. But the thing is, there, it wasn't all bad. Um, and the cast was quite good. Like they did a great job. And so I just want to highlight uh, Evan Maltby, who played Jesus, who, who was our friend. David, I was going to say that. <laughs> uh, Kim Steele, who was Mary Magdalene. 
and the ensemble Ben Bogan, Lily Thomas, and Charles West, who all had standout moments in what was something difficult to stand out in. Uh, and I think that all of them, if you have to pay your dues in theater, they have paid their dues. They worked with Gary Busey. And I think that they, that actors like that are the people who sort of are doing the work to further their careers and get seen. And I hope that someone saw them and will put them in things that are bigger and better and great. I second that. And I would second that even if Evan wasn't our friend. He's just that good. Oh, God, I can't believe I'm going to try to pronounce his name. But Andy Grotolution. <laughs> Ah! Uh, who played sort of the schlumpy best friend in Tootsie. Uh, there wasn't a lot that I want to take from Tootsie into the new year, but uh, I had not seen him before. He was absolutely hysterical in this role. I would love to see him in a show that I could get behind. I I had a hard time with this. I usually really zero in on like ensemblists, and, and I think just the shows that I saw were so few this year. And um, not not too like I don't know I couldn't even tell you Beetlejuice because everybody had such crazy costumes that who knows who was who, but I, I'm gonna go with uh, all the supporting players in Broadway Bounty Hunter because I think they deserve better. Can I reiterate something I said earlier on this podcast, which was uh, put Annie Golden in John Wick for? Oh, I mean Annie Golden and everything. I guess anyone in Broadway Broadway Bounty Hunter because they all deserve better. Uh, I'm going to say Becca Blackwell. I know that their names come up a couple of times today. And like they, I mean, they've been working hard, hard off, off Broadway for a while. And I think between This Is a Room and Hurricane Dan, that they deserve like a nice, chunky, big show to play around in. Now, if we want to say that, that, that they're not like, that they're already too established, I'm going to say... Uh, Anna Sophia Robb, uh, who is literally like witch number three in Macbeth, but I couldn't stop looking at her. And she was just so compelling as this little impy, something that I, I swore that I'd seen her in things before. And she doesn't really have much of a say. She was in... Um, Oh, of course that's what I was thinking of. No. She was in The Grinch. She was in The Grinch. Yeah, she's done like a couple of TV she things. Cindy Lou Who. Actually, I was thinking The Act, but this shows where all of our brains are at. But anyway, she was just delightful, and I would love to see more of her. And Becca Blackwell. Well, since David stole mine now. I had four, so I'm actually glad you did it so that I can whittle my list down and be less embarrassing. Um, okay, I mean, these are people who've been around for a while, sort of, a couple of them. Um, Susanna Flood has always been great. She was in Tribes uh, several years ago. This year, she did Make Believe and Plano. I mean, she's just so fantastic. I just want to see her in more and more stuff. Um, Brad Heberly is somebody who just makes me cry, apparently, in everything he does. Maybe just because he's in best wall plays that I've seen. Um, he was the kind of guy who tried so hard and strikes out in small mouth sounds. And then he also played a very different character in Make Believe and, again, made me cry. And then, I mean, this actor was happened to be the star of this very small piece called Hamnet, which was at BAM for, again, like four nights. And I was like, oh, he's so, it was young, this young boy who's like 12. Um, his name's Aaron Murphy. And I was like, oh, he's so fantastic. Like, he really holds his own. He like, ca- like, 
this he carries the entire show. I mean, he he plays off of an adult actor who's sometimes a projection and sometimes on stage, but mostly it's this twelve year old boy carrying this entire piece. And I was like, this guy is so good. <laughs> Didn't realize till the Times Review came out that he's Killian Murphy's son. <laughs> The cheekbones then all of a sudden made a lot more sense. Um, so, you know, you know, nepotism or whatever. And that was why Killian Murphy was in the audience. But I was like, I just thought he was really supportive of Irish art. I mean, you know, I, it didn't it didn't all connect for me. Murphy is a common name. Um, but I actually think, you know, we should see him in more stuff because he was really brilliant. Can I correct myself? Anna Sophia Rabb was not in The Grinch. She was in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I have two also. I love Daniel Duque Estrada, who I saw first in recent alien abductions at Walker Space. And then in our... Is it a spoiler if I say that he's in our dear dead drug lord? I mean, he's we in the... spoiled that show on this show. show. Oh, okay. So. so, well, he's seen it and he's like, he's marvelous. I would love to see him do Stanley Kowalski or someone, you know, like really like butch and horrible someday soon because he's really fantastic unlike Pablo Escobar (laughs) (laughs) he's not like butch and like you know like he's not like I don't know I don't think of Pablo Escobar as like you know yeah Uh, and also uh, earlier this this uh, during the summer we had a new festival the Rave Theater Festival my favorite thing that I saw there was a show called Ni Mi Madre which I actually saw with Jack and the the writer and performer of the show, Arturo Luis Soria, is a Brazilian-American artist who is just, like, fucking, like, magnetic on stage. He played, he did, like, a history of his relationship with his mom, where he played himself and his mom. Wow. And in my, and right now he's in The Inheritance and doing, like, a really, really tiny part. And if I had my way, I would love to see Arturo and Danielle do you know streetcar together like our children can play Blanche and Danielle can be Stanley and it would be like mind-blowing so I have two listed as well I'm going to say one of the highlights for me in uh, in Suzaki's for colored girls which was restaged at uh, the public this past fall um, was Sasha Allen lady in blue she was quite dynamic her voice was amazing and I was like why have not why haven't I seen her more? So I would love to to see her. Maybe she can be in a show co-starring along with Chris's, Crystal Lucas Perry, who was also in Ain't No More. Uh, she was passenger number five, and she actually won the Lucille Lortel Award uh, for Outstanding, Outstanding Featured Actress in a Play. Um, so I think her future is quite bright. So I'd like to see them do something together on Broadway. I was furiously Googling the kids at that second stage show I saw that was half kids, half adults. Make believe. Make believe because the kids were the most interesting part of the show. I will say the entire cast of Strange Loop, but since technically it stars Larry Owen and that is his star vehicle, I will say James Jackson, who a lot of times played the, the sassy female voice, and then I will say Antoine Hopper. Uh, who was also in there hilarious, and uh, Edmund Donovan. I will say everything I've seen him in, but he was magnetic in Greater Clements, and then in Lewiston and Clarkson. I was uh, really riveted by him, and I'd love to see him in a, a star vehicle. And there we have it, guys. We we did it. Maximu kind of came back from the ashes this year, and I'm thrilled with it. And always happy to see your, your faces and hear your voices, I guess, when I hear this in a few days. <laughs> Happy 2020. Happy Happy New Year. 
Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Maximu Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from ours, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Maximu. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximu-isms on them. You can find them all in the store at Maximu.com. And if you have any suggestions for ones that you'd like to see, let us know. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. Thanks so much to David Levy for editing this episode. Usually the host who reads the intros and outros is the editor, but the year-end was such a monster that we shared duties. Thanks, David. We'll be back again soon with our regular programming and more. See you again soon.